0: Welcome to Novel Pairings, a podcast dedicated to making the classics readable, relevant, and fun. In every episode, we'll bring our big English teacher energy, discussing the modern literary landscape in context with the classics. Along the way, we'll talk about the books we love and the books we loathe, and help stock your TBR pile with old and new reads for every literary taste. Today, we're sharing superlative books from our 2023 reading year. Hey, Chelsea. Hi, Sarah. It's time. It's time for superlatives. <laughs> Does it kind of feel like it's been time for a month? Because I feel like I started to see these lists coming out like November 1st. Yeah, totally. <laughs> they they come out so early and I I don't know. I think that's fine because I, I like the... Um, I think people want to see best of for like gifting yeah, books. Definitely. And just, I don't know, you know, I think there's a little bit of like, oh, I want to fit in some of these books before the end of the the year. So yes, it does feel like it's been time for, for a while. Yeah. I'm not fatigued by it. I just, um, sometimes I'm like, well, what do I even have to add? Um, particularly this year when I think you've said before, the buzzy books were really good. Exactly. So like, what do we, what else can we say about these solid, I solid books that came out? But I know, um, it was a solid year. It was just like a lot of heavy hitters wrote books and they were good. And you yeah. can just read those <laughs> and you'll be fine. <laughs> But we do take a different approach to best books of the year for this episode. We share superlatives, so we have some fun. Let me see what we've got on our list. We've got um, like our favorite novel pairings class. We have best audiobook, biggest disappointment, weirdest book, most underrated book, kept you thinking the longest. There are just some really great categories on here that I think will get us to talking about some backlist, some classics. Some of those books that fell maybe under the radar and the buzzy books too, because they're still fun to talk about. Even if everybody, it seems like everybody has read them. Yeah. Yeah. I know it does seem like everybody's read them, but I I will say from my vantage point. So over in the Fiction Matters Patreon, we put together our own little prize long list by having everybody submit 10 best, their 10 favorite releases of the year, put together a long list. And it was mostly... It was all, I would say, buzzy books. And then there were people in our community, and this is a community who I feel like these people read everything and are constantly reading and people being like, oh, the three that I've read, I loved. And I was like, oh, I I was worried that this would come out and everybody in our reader community would say, oh, well, I've already read all of those. And that didn't happen. So I think there's always this feeling that everybody – is reading everything, and there's nothing new to add, and then there always always is. So that's just our weird little bubble we exist in. Definitely. Yeah, I don't feel like I read nearly as many 2023 releases as I wanted to. I have a lot on my list to read that I'm just like, well, I'm going to get to it next year, and that is fine. I think part of it is I like prioritizing backlist, especially in my literary fiction. I'm reading constantly reading a lot of front list or ahead of publishing schedule in the romance genre. And then because I'm reading ahead in that part of my reading life, I kind of want to sink into more backlist stuff for literary fiction or memoir, etc. cetera. There's just so much to read. There's no way we're all going to get to the new books. That's why I like these superlatives, because this is just about the books we read in 2023, not the books that came out in 2023. Yes. And I, I think I have a decent mix, although a lot of mine this year are new releases, but, um, I'm excited to hear what backlist books you're pulling and just what variety kind of stood out to us from a very good reading year. All right. Before we get to our superlatives, We just want to share a little bit about what is coming up this year on the podcast. Um, Welcome to January. Cannot believe we're recording this in 2023 and it's going to come out in 2024, but we are beginning our Wharton in Winter read-along. We're reading The Custom of the Country by Edith Wharton, and Sarah and I are sharing recap episodes. Um, I think we'll have like seven total recap episodes for this book on the Patreon feed exclusively for literature scholars. So um, we will discuss this book on the podcast, just like our usual book selections at the end of February. But between January and the end of February, we have all sorts of fun, additional content around the custom of the country on Patreon. So you can participate on Patreon or read along with us. And it's going to be a delight to read Edith Wharton this winter together. Yeah. We just want everyone to pick this up and and sink into it. And if you feel like you're loving it and want to hang out with us on Fridays for extra chatter, join us on Patreon. And if not, if you just want to read and love this book and listen to us talk about it in February, that's that's great too. But, but we both are feeling like this is a perfect book for curling up with in the winter and we want you to have that too. Yeah. And it's not like a join at the beginning and you have to join by X day in order to participate. You can join us whenever you are able to and enjoy the content. Um, So whatever pace works best for you, we would love to have you join. All right. Before we get into our, our books talk a little bit about our podcast and our business in 2023. I feel like we finally returned to a regular routine and rhythm with podcasting, which is not to say that it's as uh regimented as it maybe once was. Not that it not that we ever were that routine, but of course like things more regularly get in the way now of our Typical recording schedule and all of that, but we really got to settle back into releasing frequent episodes on the main feed, back to our um, our standard format of our book discussions and pairings, and that felt really nice. Didn't it just kind of feel like we got our brains back a little bit this year? Yes, absolutely. After having babies, like it took, it really took to the two year mark. Or the 18 months mark. Um, So if you're kind of in the thick of it and you're like, oh my gosh, it's been a year since I had this baby and I still don't feel any kind of normal, don't worry. (laughs) Like it really, I really do feel like it took about to the 18 month mark for me to actually like feel More on top of things and have just the brain space to be able to devote to our business again. So I completely agree. I don't know if that's typical or if it's just because you and I both have bad sleepers, but it is true. Maybe it took that long. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And every like, yes, everyone's everyone's different. But yeah, there's there is something to be said for lack of sleep. (laughs) That and then Recently, I was thinking, I was like, how much of my brain space is now devoted to remembering where Louise has put all of her like tiny toys so that when she's like, mama, where's Barry, baby? I can locate it <laughs> and not experience a meltdown. I, I think it's it's a much larger portion of my brain than I would like it to be. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man. But anyway, it it was good to kind of get back to feeling a little bit more like our podcasting selves. And we read classic children's literature, which was a really fun kind of entry back into that routine and getting back into the podcast. Um, The Odyssey, which was our first big read along and went over so much better than we ever expected it to. That was amazing. I think we we needed that. We needed that yeah. level of kind of like rigor, I think, back in our podcasting and business space because it reminded us that it's energizing to do that, not draining. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so um, not that we weren't like putting our all of course into the other, but just like a different kind of reading experience to read The Odyssey and to be taking the kinds of notes and doing the kinds of um making the kinds of connections doing the kind of scholarship we needed to to record those recaps and then we i think we also needed to see how well that went over because it really helped us know like we can lean into what we do best and we'll find our people we don't need to try to be other book podcasts or other book clubs like we can really go hard on what we love and what our community loves and and it goes over so well. Yeah, behind the scenes, summer was really our time of not, I don't want to say rebranding because we didn't change anything. It was more just like sharpening our mission, what we do for the podcast, really narrowing in on the content that we love to create. Um, and that then I feel like helped us go into the fall with this sort of theme of public scholarship and really articulate what we wanted to do with that. Um, We read some challenging books this fall too, and it was really fun to do that with our community and um, just see everyone take the leap and um, share their experiences with reading these modernist novels with us. We brought short story club back, which was just, I don't know. A fun surprise because like the Odyssey we just didn't really know how well that would go over. Um but we heard from several people we love short story clips. We brought that back. And then in our personal lives and business lives we met in person finally. Yeah. You and your was family so nice. came out here and stayed with us and it was it was so fun. It was so nice. It was and it was so funny because I mean I like I honestly like I wasn't nervous about meeting in person, but we've been doing this for so long. It's like, well, how's the relationship gonna translate to all of a sudden everyone's together? Um, but it just kind of felt like we had been hanging out in person for years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was just like immediately comfortable and our little ones got along so well too, and it was so fun to see them together. And then um, yeah, it was just like it just felt so normal, which was a delight. Yes i uh, I completely agree, and um hopefully we won't go another like two and a half years before, yeah but <laughs> <laughs> um yeah and and as you said we we just kind of our community grew and we grew more confident in our mission and goals for for the show and we made some small changes on patreon and um that allowed us to kind of polish everything we're doing over there. Same with our branding, like no big changes, just, just sharpening and trying to make what we do better. And that's been, that's been really invigorating from a business standpoint too. Definitely. Well, Sarah, I really like reflecting on, on the year, but I'm ready to talk about books with you. People are here for the books, so yeah. <laughs> Chelsea, let's start. What was your novel favorite novel pairings read for the year? This is tough to pick because so many of those children's classics were just lovely to revisit. Um, but I had so much fun reading The Odyssey with everyone, and it was such a surprise. I love a surprise in my reading life. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is up there as a favorite, and then kind of shockingly like a dark horse in the competition for my favorite novel pairings read. I really loved reading a room of one's own. Yeah. And that discussion, like we kind of were like, Oh, well we'll read this and it'll just be a short story club. But it ended up being like one of, I think one of our best book discussions, literary analysis wise and close reading wise, and just like a display of our English teacher knowledge. Um, and I think you used the word invigorating before it was, it was invigorating to have that discussion, um, on a room of one's own. So those, those are top of mind for me, but I also like, I kind of wanted to mention Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry, which I also really loved, but just like that, all of those children's classics were kind of tied for, I'm so glad we reread them. Yeah. I I really enjoyed talking about a room of one's own as well. And then we also we didn't do a, a podcast episode about it, but we had a book club discussion of monsters by Claire Dieter um in August. And I think we should read more literary criticism and discuss it on the podcast and with our community. Because I mean, a room of one's own, I would call literary criticism as well. It's, you know, looking at economics and social structures, but through the lens of why aren't there more women writers. So um, yeah, I think those kinds of discussions or those kinds of texts lead to really interesting discussions. So hopefully we can work more of that in. I love the other Wolf that we read. I loved reading to the Lighthouse. And then I just keep thinking about from the mixed up files of Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler. I like by E.L. Konigsberg. I don't know why that one really stuck with me. But um, I think because it kind of surprised me, I had certain ideas of what I remembered about that book. And then some things were nostalgic and the same and others were different. And so it was a really fun reread. Mm -hmm. Um, Sarah, did you have a favorite novel pairings class? I always love our theory classes, but I decided not to pick a theory class this time. And when we talked about accessing illusions from ancient texts, I really enjoyed that because I like when we can do do classes that both help people maybe sharpen a skill that they are interested in sharpening or maybe that they – Feel like they've lost touch with somewhere along the way with their reading, but where we can also say, like, but you don't have to read that way, and it's totally fine. And I, I felt like our accessing illusions class was so both of those things where we could talk about the fun of finding illusions while also assuring people like it's totally fine if this is not how you're reading or you're missing these <laughs> things. Or um, those are those are always fun classes to teach. I think that my favorite was our modernism to postmodernism class. And not so much because like, oh, well, I love this literary time period because it's not necessarily my favorite, but um, we referenced that class so frequently through our fall season. And it's not often that we do that with our classes because we do really want our classes to accessible to people who are reading along with us or just people who want to take in the class, um, you know, kind of like a master class or a podcast episode or however they want to learn with us. And I think that they could do that with this class and get a lot out of learning about modernism to postmodernism. But for our readers who really stuck with us and read along with us through the fall, I feel like it provided such a great framework. And like I said, we referenced it. Like we pulled up that Venn diagram for modernism to postmodernism frequently. We thought about the texts and how they related to each other and some of the other authors in this time period. And um, I don't know, it just, it was kind of different from the classes that we have taught recently. I feel like we don't often get to do like a literary period. Um, maybe like once a year, every other year we do those, but it was really um, I don't know. It was just it was a solid one. Yeah, yeah. And and I I really enjoyed doing the literary period as well. And that's maybe a good lesson for us in terms of what kinds of themes work well. Because I think sometimes we're like, ah, oh, literary period is we could be more creative or clever than that. But sometimes it's just like this just makes sense. It's like so yeah. easy to put these books in conversation with each other to refer back to these themes and tropes. And and so, yeah, good good to know. We'll file that one away. Well, and we ended up, I think in a book club at some point, we ended up having a pretty extensive conversation about stream of consciousness and like, what exactly is it? And we were able to deep dive that. And without the sort of scaffolding and groundwork that we laid in that class, I don't think we would have gotten to that Point so, it's fun. I mean, that's such an that's such a teacher thing to say, right? Like, we're <laughs> scaffolding these classes. Um, we really do. The goal is for people to be able to jump in and out as they want, but to be able to like really see the learning in our community and the connections being made is fulfilling. All right, this uh, this superlative was your idea, so we're each going to share a favorite pairing from the other person. So. Chelsea. I thought it was was too hard to pick my (laughs) pairing. I know. (laughs) I thought so I thought it would be too hard to pick like what was your own favorite pairing Mm -hmm. because usually it's like books that we really like that we want to pair with other books. But this was kind of fun. It was fun to scroll back and see what our pairings were. And Sarah, I loved when you paired Gone Girl with Rebecca not just because it works so well, but because you reread Gone Girl and really loved that experience and got to talk about that rereading experience in the episode. And so that was super memorable as a pairing, but I just thought it was so smart and really showed your dedication. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I highly recommend to anyone rereading Gone Girl. I know like most thrillers aren't not most, but a lot of thrillers aren't necessarily worth a reread. And you read them for the twist. And so, you know, what's the point? But let me assure you, like you will get so much out of a reread of Gone Girl, especially if you recently read Rebecca with us. <laughs> All right. Um, I think my favorite of yours was when you paired Wellness by Nathan Hill with To the Lighthouse. Because I knew you would pick that one. <laughs> well, because I love that book. But yes. I also just liked it because it was like totally spontaneous. You had just yeah. like started talking about wellness and then like on the fly where I think kind of like convincing yourself why it might be a good pairing. And then just ended <laughs> it with like, yeah, so that is my pairing. <laughs> <laughs> I I loved getting to see like in real time, you thinking through why this would be a, or could be a good pairing. Um, so that was really fun. All right. Well, I think we're going to have to keep that superlative because yeah. I enjoyed that one. Me that too. was really fun. <laughs> um, okay, let's get into our general reading lives here. So, Sarah, speaking of wellness, it looks like that was your favorite audiobook of yeah, the year. Yeah, the I was best just gonna, audiobook. I was going to look and see if I have another one because, um, because it, that was. But I. But just I think talked about I mean wellness. so. Not why it was really good on audio though, which I listened to it on audio too, and I really liked it in that format. And I've seen so many readers talk about how much they loved the audiobook version specifically. So I mean the the narrator was great, but is there another reason why it worked well on audio for you? Um, well, I think that yeah, the narrator was great. I think that, you know, one thing that the book I mean, the book is all about the kind of tangents and rabbit holes that Nathan Hill weaves in to further emphasize his themes. And I think that that worked very well for me on audio. I think in a similar way that like a lot of people said that to The Lighthouse worked well on audio. It's like, it feels almost like you're getting somebody's like internal monologue or somebody just like, you know, in, info dumping in, on you, but in a very entertaining way where I could see maybe on the page, your mind would start to wander and things. but when you're, you're in it with a very good narrator, you just feel like you're being told a great story with all of these little asides. So I, I, I thought the audiobook was fantastic and I think I would have loved this book no matter what, but I'm really glad I did it on audio. My best audiobook was congratulations. The best is over by R. Eric Thomas. And again, like you said, this would have been one of my favorite books of the year, regardless of how I read it, but I love listening to him on audio. He narrates his own work and I just love a humorous memoir and essays. It's just like a sweet spot in my reading life, but, um, Whereas I think his first memoir essays here for it was like truly lighthearted and funny, even though he talked about some, um, heavy themes. This one was very like heartfelt and emotional and it was still funny, but I just, I don't know. I really, I really loved listening to it. It's still great on the page because he's an excellent storyteller. And if you're interested in craft and like how he crafts his essays, that's great, but his voice is just lovely. And I feel like you can really hear the humor and warmth behind his stories and the, the care that he has for the people that he's telling these stories about. So um, yeah, I really love listening to you. Congratulations. The best is over. What about a book with the most interesting structure that you read this year? This is one I feel like I haven't stopped talking about on the podcast. And That's I almost okay. I almost included it as like a book that you would recommend to Sarah, but I've already recommended it to you a bunch of times. Yes. <laughs> and <laughs> I is, and I will read it. Yes. It is Disoriental by Nagar And um I guess the structure is uh, you know, it's tricky to pin down. It's a little bit like wellness in the sense that there is a um like a story at the ground level but then there are all of these sort of tangents and corridors and side stories built on it um so the narrator is sitting in a fertility clinic um and as she's sitting there and waiting for her appointment and finishing her appointment like walking home she's just like remembering all of these family stories Um, And they, it's not just like her immediate family. It is generations and generations and generations ago, um, her, of her family in Iran, um, going through various political, historical, social changes, and then eventually immigrating to um, her, her location. I don't want to like give too much away because the less, you know, going in, I think the better. Um, But it's an immigrant story. It is a sweeping family story. Um, and there's a lot of really um, interesting historical detail. And so the structure is very like loose in the sense that it's tangential and flowing in and out of this narrator's consciousness. But um, I, the narrator kind of guides you through. So she'll be telling one story and she's like, and now let's pause and like breaks the fourth wall almost. Which is why I think it worked well on audio for me too. Um, Disoriental by Nagar chavadi most interesting structure, but also just one of my favorite books of the year. Well, I couldn't pick one, so I have four. <laughs> <laughs> for this category, that makes a lot of sense for you. <laughs> okay. Well, let me tell you what they are and you'll be like, well, of course you couldn't choose one of these because they all have such wild yeah. and original structures. So. Same Bed, Different Dreams by Ed Park, which is an alternate history novel that also has a novel within a novel. I have The Employees by Olga Robin, which takes place on a spaceship and is, in to- is told entirely through like HR interviews with the employees on the spacecraft. I have One Woman Show by Christine Colson, which, Chelsea, you really should read. It's the story of one woman's life in the Gilded Age, told entirely through museum placards as if she were the work of art. Bye bye, Louise. Where are you going? I'm going to the Seesaw Park. Oh, you're going to the Seesaw Park? Great. <laughs> You're going to hold on to Gorilla? Yes. sorry. if I go, up will with him. Oh, that's going to be so fun. <laughs> All right, bye-bye. <laughs> oh, my gosh. If that got caught on mic because I could hear her, <laughs> you have to keep that in. We go to the seesaw for Her little voice oh, is just mama. so cute. I want to bottle it up. <laughs> I love you. Know, so cute. Need you need a kiss on your hand? Okay. Okay. I got through one woman show, right? I think so. I think so. Okay. Um, <laughs> told in museum placards. So like, you know, what the medium is, like what the pay, t- it, who it was acquired by. Fantastic. And then I read The Luminaries by Eleanor Catton, where she she looked at the, the astronomical sky of the year her book takes place in, assigned every single character a planet or constellation. And then as they moved in and out of each other, as the planets moved in and out of various houses in the sky, that's how she mapped her plot. So I could not choose just one of these <laughs> because those, yeah, those are all super inventive. Yes. And I loved them all. So I love a structure driven book. You do. I do too. But I, for some reason, I just didn't have quite as many this year. So maybe next year. Maybe that's next fine. year. Yeah. Sarah, what was your biggest disappointment? So I put Romantic Comedy by Curtis Sittenfeld in here, but then I realized that I did read that like last year. Fully. Yeah. I read that in 2022. So um, I will I will say, I mean, that was still probably my biggest disappointment because Curtis Sittenfeld is just, she's like an auto-buy author for me, even though I, her books are either big hits or big misses for me. Um. The other disappointment. Um, I'm gonna not. I'm gonna not beat up on a beloved book, and I'm gonna say West Heart Kill by Dan Mac- mm. Um Where and I think I there. This was out from Knopf, one of my favorite publishers, and they sent like these puzzle boxes before they sent the book, and there's just all of this like publishing buzz around it. I was very excited for this literary meta mystery, and it was just a little too clever for my mm. my taste. It was it was it was extremely clever, but it was all cleverness and very little like heart. So, mm-hmm. that was that was disappointing. How about you? Um, I mean, I was disappointed by a romantic comedy too, just cuz I thought it was going to do something new and interesting and different, but I've talked enough about that in various places. Um, biggest disappointment. I Biggest is what's tripping me up here because yeah, it yeah. wasn't like my least favorite book of the year or whatever, but um, The Pleasing Hour by Lily King. I love Lily King and um, Writers and Lovers is one of my favorite books, just like period over the years. I've reread it like back to back. That's very rare for me. I love that book. And, um, maybe like once a year, my intention is to pick up something from her backlist. So I haven't read Euphoria yet. That's on my shelf, but I reached for The Pleasing Hour. Maybe I was thinking I was going to pair it with something for the show. I don't remember why I picked this one up I think you did. I, it was in our, one of our docs with like a question. Okay. A diet, so, um, so I don't remember if, I don't think I ended up pairing it. I don't think so um, because I was kind of indifferent about it. It actually it might've gone okay with To The Lighthouse. Um, it just wasn't great. Like it just didn't, I don't expect all of her books to be the same as writers and lovers or to hit all of those perfect emotional notes for me like that one. Um, but this one just disappointed me because I, read it all the way through and I just didn't like it that much. Like it's not one that's going to be memorable. And I was hoping it was going to be a memorable read for me. And I think that's totally fine. (laughs) Sometimes there's not like a grand, big reason that we just don't like a book. We just don't like it as much as we wanted to. Yeah. Like I obviously liked it enough to keep reading it. And I am always just interested in her writing style, but it just like, just wasn't great. All right. Well, let's see. Up next, what was the most comforting book that you read, or one that helped you through a hard time? So I guess tonally, just comforting in general, or something that provided you specifically with comfort. I just have a super cozy graphic novel series, and actually, Sarah, I think that Lou would really like looking through this one with you. Um. The first one is The Tea Dragon Society. It's by Kay O'Neill. The stories are very, or the um, images, I should say, are very like cottagecore fairy tale fantasy. So it's this just really sweet, cozy fantasy. I don't think that it is YA, but it's like gentle enough to be YA, or I guess I wouldn't say middle grade because there's kind of like um, some more adult themes in some of them. Um, but it's just, it's really sweet and adorable. And I read all three books in the series and just loved the illustrations. So it's set in this world where there are tea dragons and the dragons like grow certain types of tea leaves on their backs and they're assigned to a caregiver and the caregiver like makes sure that the dragon is healthy and loved and cared for. And they establish this relationship that makes them healthy enough to grow the tea leaves. And so there's like this cute tea shop. It's all this enchanted world. There's a blacksmith apprentice. Um, she makes friends with these people at the tea dragon shop. And it's just, it's kind of like, so I don't play, any video games, but if I were to, I probably, it would probably be one of those like soothing ones where everybody just kind of like walks around a little village and makes friends with people. (laughs) And the, um, graphics are really cute. That's what this reminded me of. Um, and yeah, it's just, just really sweet. So the Tea Dragon Society by Kay O'Neill, they're pretty short. You can read through them in an hour. Um, I think that Lou would really like the illustrations in these if you wanted to try something different and like be able to sit next to her and kind of read through it. Oh, that's a great idea. She also is uh, a little bit afraid of dragons right now. So maybe some gentle tea dragons will. And they're little. Yeah. <laughs> they're like tiny little like a hedgehog, but or a puppy, but a dragon that you like follows you around. They're really cute. Oh, that sounds awesome. Okay. Um, uh, mine is the fortnight in September by R. C. Sheriff, and this is the book that Kazuo Ishiguro said was his comfort read in a Guardian article, and then um one of our uh, patrons Elizabeth Miller recommended it to me uh, after seeing that, um and I I loved it. This is a, it. It's about a family of four, maybe five. <laughs> I might be forgetting about one child going on their um, annual two-week holiday that they go on every September to the same place. And it was um, published in 1931. So it's just, it's a classic and it, it's comforting in the sense of like, just reminding readers of like noticing the small things and that you know, these big feelings we have about rather little things day to day are normal and typical and so human. And yeah, this is one of those books that's about nothing and everything and just like really, I think, nails what it feels like to be a person. And I loved it. All right. This is a sharp turn, Sarah. Yeah. (laughs) From most comforting to What's well, the weirdest book you read? I mean, the first thing that came to mind was Blind Owl by oh, Yeah Diet, which we read for the podcast and was so weird. And I like – but I – it was weird and I can't say I like, I liked reading it, but I'm so glad I read it and I really appreciated it. And then I felt like this one too helped me get to a new level of getting back my reading habits and instincts because I – this was not a book that was easy for me to understand, and I don't—I still don't think I understand it. But I—I I enjoyed trying to piece some things together and make my own, um, come up with my own ideas about what this book was trying to do. So that one, and then, the land of milk and honey by C. Pam Zhang, was so weird, both in terms of plot and where it goes, and. I heard this book described – I wish I could give credit to this. I, I think it was probably like in a Lit Hub article or something. I heard it described as an eco-gothic, and it definitely reads like that to me, and that is weird. Yeah, <laughs> and weird combo. Yeah, and I, but I thought it really worked. Um, so those are my two weird books. I read Mrs. Caliban by Rachel Ingalls, which is uh, yeah. about – A housewife who's just kind of like unhappy in her marriage, but, you know, content to just keep plugging along. And then all of a sudden she hears on the radio that a large giant amphibian man escaped from his research aquarium and he shows up in her kitchen and they fall in love and have a relationship. I read this one this year too. It's very weird. Yeah, It's weird. But it's good. I liked it a lot. And it's short. So like Blind Owl, it's like, well, I can handle weird if it's only for like under 150 pages. Yeah, <laughs> totally. And I, um, I I, first heard about this from Marlon James on his podcast, Marlon and Jake Reed, Dead People. He talks about it all the time. And then I know Ann Patchett also talks yeah. about it in her Parnassus stories. So I, I think just putting that out there for like if you – are thinking about reading Mrs. Caliban, this lies somewhere in the Venn diagram of Marlon James and Anne Patchett. And (laughs) I think that's a selling point, which like, I feel like that's That's probably a pretty overlap. overlap. Totally. Yeah. A big overlap. But I feel like I might lean more Ann Patchett reading taste and you would lean to the Marlon (laughs) James, don't you think? Yeah, Yeah, totally. It makes sense that we both liked this one is what I'm saying. (laughs) For sure. All right. Um, let's talk underrated. Yeah, I had so many that I could have picked for this. I felt like in addition to a lot of the buzzy books working for me this year because there was because there were so many buzzy books, there were also so many that went under the radar. Um yeah. but I'm going to put out because it's been out Oh, quite a while. And I'd love to see more people pick it up. The Sense of Wonder by Matthew Celices. He is the author of Craft in the Real World, which is the, like, book about reading and writing that I always talk about and, and think everyone who talks about books publicly should at least skim through at some point. But this is – the story is very much based on um, Jeremy Lin and the whole, like, Lin Sanity Nicks basketball thing. Um, it's about the like only it's, but it's fictionalized. It's about the only, uh, Asian American player in the NBA and how he starts getting some fame and playing really well. And then like how, how that changes his, his life, but it's, it's kind of meta. It's not, a, it's not metafiction, but it is meta in the sense that throughout the story, Matthew Celices is, kind of teaching you how to read his novel and telling you what your expectations are and then defying them. And then what I thought was so interesting about that was so many of the reviews that I read were basically like, you know, exactly what he said they would be. (laughs) People who expected one thing from this novel and, and didn't get it. And I just I think he's so brilliant to do that. And it's the kind of book you want to start from the beginning when you finish. So I, I think it was a great one. And one that I hope more people pick up. I underrated was Family Lore by Elizabeth Acevedo, which I don't know, maybe people are like, that wasn't underrated. I saw that everywhere. And it was well marketed. Um has this gorgeous cover, which always helps. But I the reviews were kind of unfavorable. Um, I didn't see a lot of love for this one. It definitely didn't make any awards lists, and I like I can see why. I can see some arguments for that, um, where Acevedo was maybe trying to do a little too much with the structure, and um, I just I think the reason I liked it so much was because I've read all of her other work. And this entry into the adult fiction space felt like such a continuation of all of the themes that she's written about in her YA books. I love the poetry of her writing. I listened to this one on audio. It did take me a little bit to get acclimated to like what exactly the structure and framework of her story was, how she was telling this, but I really loved it. I loved the touch of magical realism. And, um, I, by the time I got to the end, I just had this like overwhelming sense that she poured herself into the novel. I couldn't tell you exactly where that came from. It just like, I really felt like, oh my goodness, she just like gave everything in here and it felt really personal. And Then a few days later, I did read an interview from her talking about how this is the first time she felt like she put everything on the page and how deeply personal some of these storylines were to her. And the fact that I felt that prior to reading her words about her story says something to me about the quality of her writing and the way that she's just such a good storyteller. So I really loved this book. I just haven't seen a lot of other love for it. And I think that it's, for me and my reading taste, it was underrated. I, I think she's brilliant and I'll read anything else that she writes. Oh, I really want to read this now because I, yeah, I, and it's not that I didn't pick it up because of, you know, seeing the early buzz and then the less positive reviews. I just, for whatever reason, didn't prioritize it, but now I want to. Yeah, and I think you would like the audiobook too, which okay, was always a draw. I was, yeah, I was going to ask about um, that. She narrates along with one or two other people. And um, part of the frame of the book is that one of the characters is doing like a cultural study um, and is um, an anthropologist and is doing like an anthropological collection of family stories and is recording. Some of the other characters that works well on audio to me, because if you're recording them and they're storytelling and they're like talking to each other, that's perfect for an audio book. So it worked well in that format, I think. Oh, great. Okay. Um, book we disagreed on. I I don't know. Are we supposed to fight about it or just? <laughs> I don't think so. I just think it's. I think it's fun to bring up, and I think it's. I don't know. People love to hear like disparate opinions on a book, right? Yeah. Yeah.
1: (laughs) And it's rare
0: that we disagree on the podcast about like our classics. So Mm -hmm. I don't know. This one stands out because it's a book we both read, Mm -hmm. but we had not totally different reading experiences, but like where it's on my favorites of the year, I think it landed more on like one of your disappointments of the year. Yes. Yeah. It is Saturday Night at the Lakeside, Supper Club by Jay Ryan Stradle. Um, Do you want me to say my criticisms and then we can end on a high note? Yeah, I okay. think so. So um, this wasn't like something I was super, super looking forward to because you had just recommended his books to me as books that were warm but not light. And so I read Kitchens of the Great Midwest, which I liked, although I did have – some like qualms about the structure of that book too. Um, but I, uh, there's something about his writing and I'll circle back to this as I finish my critique, but that I, that I'm really drawn to. And so I was very excited to pick up this newest and I'd seen, uh, I think maybe you included say that like people say that this was like his, his best and, um, his maybe most ambitious and, I felt like – and I just went on a whole rant on Instagram today about the difference between didn't like a book and what didn't work. And for me, the structure of this book didn't work for what he was – what I thought he was trying to do. So it's a nonlinear timeline and not just like a back and forth, but um, just kind of like floating all, almost all all over like between past and and present so we get the story of this restaurant and the the families that it touches and i think those structures work best when they're about like kind of subtle reveals about who characters really are what their motivations might be that you weren't seeing at the onset or when they're used to draw kind of a juxtaposition between two things happening at different times. And for for this structure, I felt like it didn't achieve either of those things. It actually left me more confused about who the characters were. I felt like they um, acted kind of differently in different timelines without getting to see how they changed in those regards. I felt like I was missing that piece. And there's also like a very big plot point that you know the outcome of because of the way the book begins. And I didn't like the way that hung over my head as I was reading. Um, I can see how maybe other readers would think that was almost like a gentler way of doing it so there wasn't this like shock or surprise. But to me, that element didn't didn't work so well. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, okay, I think it would be interesting for you to read The Lager Queens of Minnesota. That's what everybody says. <laughs> because it's a similar structure. Okay. I wonder if it would work better for you in terms of revealing character. So this is how J. Ryan Stradal writes, mm-hmm. where he does weave together multiple timelines and different um like different generational stories of the Midwest. I don't know if you know this, Sarah. He writes all of those separately before he puts them together in one book. That... Wait, what do you mean? (laughs) (laughs) He writes like a book's worth of one timeline, Mm -hmm. a book's worth of the other timeline, and a book's worth of the other timeline before he puts it together like a puzzle piece of when do I want to reveal what at what time and how do I want to tell these stories woven together? So he writes them as separate stories, hmm. and then he puts them together. Which I don't know how someone's brain can work like that. Like that's, that's what Nathan to Hill me. did too for wellness. Yeah, but maybe somewhere in the putting together of Saturday Night, he didn't do it in a way that clicked for you as a reader. Yeah. Um. I think the other thing is I didn't realize, so I am I grew up born and raised in Wisconsin, went to college in Minnesota, very much feel a strong Midwestern identity. And I didn't. I mean, I knew that his books were like by and for Midwesterners. And they're written as love letters to his mother, which there's a really beautiful piece that he wrote, I think in Lit Hub maybe about like why he writes his books and how he like writes his mother's story through everything that he writes. Like I just love him as a person. Yeah. <laughs> but um, it's a very Midwestern book. And I don't just mean in the like cultural references, the way the characters behave. And I think the like structure and the way he tells the story feels really Midwestern to me in the sense that it's, I don't want to say passive aggressive, but there <laughs> is like a passive aggressive element to it. But like, midwesterners will will only share up to a point or we will really suck it up and bury emotions deep and it comes out later and so in his stories often like i feel like i can see where maybe if you see these leaps in characters where maybe like in one time period they're different than the other one I can read that subtext of what happened because they're Midwestern and they were bearing those feelings and they just happened to be popping out in a different moment. Um, There's just something like viscerally Midwestern about the way he writes and weaves together those stories that I think I get on a different level. And from what I have read of reviews, it seems to be a lot of people being like, I just didn't feel like I could access this part of like this very specific culture. Um and so maybe that has something to do with it. I I would be really curious to hear about um your experience with Lager Queen. Um because I agree with you. Like there is just something about the warmth of his writing mm-hmm. that is appealing. Mm-hmm. Um and so yeah, I just a lot of this is colored just by like me really enjoying him as a person and thinking that he's um, very talented, but, um, I, I did love the book. Um, but a lot of why I loved it was just because I felt very, very seen. Um, well, it's very Midwestern. Yeah. And I mean, I, I already brought up this book, but, um, craft in the real world by Matthew Celices, right. Is all about like understanding that the expectations we have around the craft of writing, like what structures make for effective stories and what type of sentences make for beautiful writing, all of that is constructed by our, our cultures. And so I think this is, even though like this might not necessarily be the exact angle that Celestes is talking about when he's writing about this is part of it, like that there... You know, some books make themselves more readily available to people with certain backgrounds or understandings of stories than than others. And I will also say that I I really appreciate that that he's getting published with his like very midwestern books because how many New York novels are there? And then you hear people say like, well, like oh I've heard this about Fleischman is in trouble all the time, which is a book I love, but like, oh, you know, if you haven't lived in New York, like you just can't appreciate it. And then, and that's like, like dismissive of the reader, (laughs) you know? Um, and I think that there are some contexts, which we're really okay saying that for and others, which we're like, we put it on the author to explain themselves. Um, so I, I, yeah, this book, it wasn't, i didn't like it as much as i wanted to but i i see um i see what is happening with his writing and i'm i will definitely pick up his next book or uh lager queens at some point i've heard several people say that's still their favorite yeah i feel so i didn't love the audiobook because i think the narrator did uh didn't sound uh like she was from minnesota to me (laughs) that's not okay (laughs) I would like to reread it on the page because it might end up being my favorite above Saturday night at the Lakeside Supper Club if I read it on the page Um, because it it is a really fun one. And you like beer. (laughs) So I feel like it's a fun like kind of um, entry point there as well. But it would also be Mm -hmm. fun if you ever get the chance to see him speak Um, or if you like happen to be visiting me (laughs) next time he's in town (laughs) because it's so... Sweet to be there, and he's just like this super nice guy. And then all of these like <laughs> um, middle-aged to senior women standing up and almost being in tears, saying like, "I saw my mother in your book, and I worked for a supper club back when I was in the way you wrote it. It was like exactly like I knew it, and just seeing these." People feel so seen. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, he and he said this, I think, at one of his events. Like, there aren't a ton of books set in the Midwest that aren't, like, Chicago or Minneapolis and, like, just are about very, like, colloquial families. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that sounds like such a ridiculous thing to say because the Midwest is, like, a very white part of the country and when you talk about diversity in publishing like that's not where you want to go but he i think he has a point that like some some of these stories about specific communities haven't been told and he's doing he's doing that and making people feel very seen and loved in his writing which i think is so, just so sweet totally and that may not be what we mean when we talk about diversity in publishing but how many like rich new york novels like exactly. New York novels that people can't of, relate free, to, rich white families get published yeah. every every year. So like yes, that we can we can notice like the gaps in what's getting published in a variety of ways. Yeah. Um okay, Sarah. I I like this superlative a lot. What is the book that kept you thinking for a long time after you finished it? Still thinking about Beyond the Door of No Return by David Jopp, which um was translated from the French and is a very um layered story about um Jopp is French Senegalese, and this story is a but is about a um a white man in the the 18th century who um, travels to Africa around the continent and um, begins a infatuation with a woman who um, it is claimed is the only person to ever have returned from the door of no return, right? The, the door where, where, captured africans were boarded onto ships and sold into slavery in the us and there it's all told through this man's diaries and throughout the whole and his daughter is reading the diaries throughout the whole book you're like what what is david job doing because he you know this is this is not his debut novel he's written much more like personal visceral stories of his community and I'm still not totally sure fully what this book was doing, but I know that I got to the last chapter and my like jaw hit the floor. It was like, it's, it's very different from this, but it was an atonement style like, oh, that's what this book is. Um, and so I can't stop thinking about it. I haven't stopped thinking about Doomsday Book. By Connie Willis, which I noticed maybe a couple months ago, got a new release, got like a new cover, a little makeover. Um, and I'm kind of interested in that. I think mostly it's because it's a pandemic novel. So it was like, ooh, maybe people are going to be returning to this one. And did she have, she had a new book come out this year too, right? The Roswell book? Oh, maybe. I don't know. I don't, know. I don't really like yeah. follow her career. Um, this one was first published in 1992 And I read it and I was like, okay, science fiction, time travel, historical fiction. Great. I really enjoyed it. Kind of in the same way that I enjoy Outlander, where like I like the detailed descriptions of like daily life and all of the herbs that Claire's picking and how she's being a doctor in this different time. Um, this book features Kivrin, who is a student at Oxford. And Oxford has this special time travel section of the university and, um, her professors are sending her to the 14th century. Um, and so she has to receive all these inoculations so that she doesn't get diseases and, um, go. And there's just like this back and forth about her inoculations and the diseases because she goes back to the 14th century. All of a sudden, she gets there and she's sick, and so she goes and this she finds this family and they take her in. But it's the 14th century, so it's really dangerous for a woman alone. And um, they like bring her back to health, but then everybody else starts getting sick around town. Meanwhile, in the like present day, in the at Oxford, something's going around, and there start to be like major disease pandemic-y things happening. So I, of course, as I was reading, kept thinking about COVID and drawing all of those parallels. And it was really, it's just interesting because Kivrin is in the 14th century. There's like just a lot of religious conversations and her understanding of like why this disease is happening versus their understanding of why this disease is happening is, is very different and the way she cares for people and nurses them to back to health. And so I read it and I was like, of course, thinking of COVID, recency bias. I finished it and I kind of like was reviewing it and talking about it. And um, someone sent me a message and was like, I read this back in the 90s and it's an allegory for AIDS. Oh, wow. And that blew my mind. It like opened up the book for me in a totally new way. And like, if I could go back knowing that I know that there would be so much that I was picking up on that I didn't the first time around. So, um, that's Doomsday Book by Connie Willis. If you're in the mood for a chunky novel, it's like almost 600 pages and it's, I liked it. It was, it was a good read. I've read another of her Oxford time travel books, um, to say nothing of the dog, which is, I really Liked, but I I don't remember it very well. But um, that one's more I, like I think Victorian and kind of funny. Yes, I, yes. I want to read that one too. Mm-hmm. It's it's good, but I have been loving chunky books, so maybe I'll get to Doomsday book next year. Yeah, I think you might might be into it. Okay, especially you allegory too. I know. Come on. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> best under the radar, which I think we're differentiating between underrated and under the radar, underrated being like maybe people did read it and say it was not good and it was. And, <laughs> and uh, under the radar, maybe just one people missed. Uh, mine is Loved and Missed by Susie Boyd out from the uh, New York Review books, just the, that small little um, publisher that puts out great paperbacks every year. Um, it's a story of mothers and daughters. There's a grandmother, Ruth, uh, her daughter, who is drug addict, and then her daughter's daughter, who Ruth kind of ends up caring for. Um, It's just, it's sad and it's beautiful. It's It's a quiet novel about pretty ordinary people, but it's just lovely, especially when you get to where the title comes from. It's fantastic. What's yours? Mine is, uh, which one? All the Right Notes by Dominic Lim. It is a romance novel and I just didn't see it as many places as I would have loved to. I haven't seen it on lots of best books or best romances of the year. I loved this book. It's so lovely. It's closed door, which I know people are always looking for closed door romances. And it's described as a rom-com. It is not a rom-com. It is not a rom com. Let me repeat: it is not. That doesn't mean that there aren't funny moments and that it isn't joyful, but there are also some really sad parts of this book. Um, It's about Keto, and he is a brilliant piano player in New York City, Um, and he kind of reconnects with this guy Emmett, who he knew back in I think high school or college. Um, and, um, Emmett is a movie star now. Keto's dad wants him to travel back home to California, um, and bring Emmett for this big, like end of the year choir concert that his dad is putting on. Um, and so he goes back home and he's, uh, interacting with Emmett as they plan this concert and they fall in love and, um. Keto kind of discovers like how he wants to change his life and career and his relationship with his dad is really sweet. It's just a lovely, lovely book. I couldn't put it down. I cried at the end. Um, yeah, so that's all the right notes by Dominic Lim. All right. Chelsea, what's your favorite cover of the year? So technically I read The Center by Ayesha Manazir Siddiqui in December last year or December 22, but it came out in 2023 in the summer. And I think that cover is amazing of The Center. That's probably my favorite or the best, best cover. I think there were a lot of good covers this year, but The Center was a great one. Yeah. A lot of good covers. I, mine, I didn't even read this book, but I just can't keep stop thinking about the cover. And every time I see it, I'm like, I want to own that book, even though I don't think I even want to read it, <laughs> um, is Big Swiss by Jen Began with the like, catching blonde, cover, yeah. like upside down on the Yeah. Yeah. With her like eyes wide open. Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. That's, it's a freaky one. Yeah. Yeah. There is just something about it. Um. Anyways, maybe I'll read it because I just want to own the cover. We'll see. Maybe. (laughs) Sarah, what is a book that you read that is just, it's pure entertainment and it was just solely for you enjoying the story? You know, this is always a tough category. I know. (laughs) This is not why Sarah reads. (laughs) But... um, I loved Emily Wilde's Encyclopedia of Fairies by Heather Fawcett. And I think it's more than pure entertainment. Like there's a lot happening oh, yeah. in this book, but yeah. I just thought it was so fun. Um, and I think it works really well for me for this category because the whole thing is told in her like journal entries. And probably like, you know, a third of the way through, I was just like, this could this is absurd that these are yeah. supposed to be her <laughs> journal entries. <laughs> Yeah. but i didn't care at all because i was having so much fun with the with the book it's about a um a professor who uh who she's she studies fairies this is just like a a an academic field in this world and um she has this uh p- this professional rival who joins her in trying to finish her encyclopedia. And then of course it becomes they become maybe something other than than rivals, but it was just so fun. And I I loved the little asides about types of fairies and magic. And it was really, really fun. I think the next one's coming out soonish. Yeah, early January this year. Okay. Yeah. I'm excited to read it. Um okay, pure entertainment. A book that really entertained me, super entertaining was Hotel of Secrets by Diana Biller. And this is a historical romance, but it's set in Austria and there are spies and there's this, uh, like three generations of women own this hotel and it's crumbling and the heroine has to revive it to its old glory. So you have like these Austrian balls and parties and, um, so fun (laughs) just a really entertaining read the the romance is great there's like good banter and crackly chemistry but also like a spy and espionage and danger subplot it's great couldn't turn the pages fast enough so hotel of secrets by diana biller what do you read any great adaptations or retellings this year what was your your best I think the best adaptation of The Year was Tom Lake by Ann Patchett. Not just because the way that she adapted um, Our Town was so good, but because so many people, and I say so many people because we're in a very nerdy community, but so many people that I know read Our Town Because of this book, either they read Tom Lake first and then they wanted to read Our Town or they listened to Anne Patchett who said, you'll get a lot more out of this if you read Our Town first. And like that is quite a high praise or like the mark of a great adaptation if it makes you want to read the original text. So Tom Lake by Anne Patchett, there's not much more that I have to say about this book. It's like a favorite of so many people for so many reasons. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's great for this, this category. I really loved Stone Blind by Natalie Haynes, which was a retelling of the Medusa myth. But I do think it's um, a little misleading to, to say that. Um, the, it's really like – I mean, it, it, it is a retelling of the Medusa myth, but it doesn't just focus on Medusa. It's not like the, a Circe type of book where it's really getting into the interiority of one quote-unquote misunderstood character. It's told from all different perspectives, uh, different, um, different mythological characters, even like different inanimate, inanimate objects, um, get a voice in this, this story. So if you go in thinking like it's a it's a Circe, but for Medusa, you will be disappointed. Is it is really like we get into Perseus's um perspective, and it was just so funny. The audiobook is fantastic. Um I I really, really loved this one. A great myth retelling. Gotta have a myth retelling? Of course. <laughs> Almost made it through this whole episode without one. That would be a travesty. <laughs> the mythology girls would riot against mm-hmm. you. <laughs> um, Sarah, what's a book that you're recommending to everyone in your real everyday life? Because sometimes I find that what I recommend to like my mom or my close friends in real life might be a little different from the books that I'm recommending on the internet all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, Northwoods by Daniel Mason is high, high up there. Um, and loot by Tanya James. They're both really different, but, but both kind of historical fiction, both have, um, different changes in perspective. I think Northwoods I think Northwoods has really, really wide appeal, and that's why I'm recommending it a ton, but it's still very literary. And loot, I think, I mean, it's not underrated or under the, it was on the National Book Award long list, but it's still one that I think um, could work for a lot of different types of, of readers. And I would like to see it get a little more love from real readers. So those are my two. How about you? I keep recommending The Heaven and Earth Grocery Store by James McBride. Broad appeal, I think, to so many different readers. I handed my copy off to my mom and she's going to read it and then probably pass it on to my sister-in-law and it'll just kind of like make its rounds through the family. But I've recommended it to some of my friends' moms. Um, It's like a great book club book, but I think readers of any age can get something out of it. And it's just, he's such a good storyteller. So yeah, the heaven and earth grocery store. I think, I think it should be on lots of book club discussion lists. It's, it's a great one. All right. Well, speaking of recommending to everyone, I I hope that was a good mix of books that people have also read and loved Or seen everywhere and wondered if it was for them, or maybe some books that you hadn't considered reading that now you are. I I always love doing the superlatives because I do feel like we get a chance to talk about some books that we wouldn't otherwise. Definitely. We would love to hear your superlatives so you can comment on our Instagram post for this episode. If you're in our Patreon community, you can hop in our Discord channel and share there. um, And just let us know any of your favorite books of the year or specific categories that we shared in this episode. And we have a bunch of superlatives that we didn't get to in this main feed episode because it would be three hours long. (laughs) Um, But we will share a bonus episode on Patreon with more 2023 superlatives. And at our $5 level, you can access those Friday bonus episodes. But if you are thinking you would like to read the custom of the country with us, you should join us at the $10 level so that you get those bonus episodes and read along content, recaps, classes, book club events, and everything else that we offer. So we would love to have you in our Patreon community for Wharton in winter. Thank you to Miles Eichner and Mark Anderson for our theme music. We'll be back soon with a Modern Readers episode. Until then, we declare, after all, there is no enjoyment like reading. How much sooner one tires of anything than of a book.